Well, before we begin our time in God's Word, let's open up with a word of prayer. Father God, as I look down at my measly notes, Father, we are reminded that we need your Spirit to empower us for everything in life. We need your empowering this morning, Lord, to help us come to your Word with humble and broken hearts, wanting to be healed and wanting to be challenged, Lord, unto holiness. So enable us by your Spirit, Father, to receive and embrace your Word, For the glory of Christ. In the name of Jesus, we ask this. Amen. Amen. Well, the title of our message this morning is Spirit Empowered Love. And so I invite you to turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. And I want to read verses 1 through 5. Galatians 6, verses 1 through 5. And I would ask you to stand with me for the reading of the Word of God, if you're able to do that. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. Amen to the reading of his word. Please have a seat. Well, some time ago I came across a short poem written by a little boy. And the poem describes what it's like as a family to be part of a Christian church, quote-unquote. And he begins with what Sunday mornings look like as the family prepares to attend the corporate gathering. Sunday is a funny day. It starts with lots of noise. Mommy rushes around with socks and Daddy shouts, You boys! Then Mommy says, Now don't blame them. You know you're just as bad. You've only just got out of bed. It really makes me mad. And when we get to church at last, it's really very strange. Because mom and dad stop arguing. And suddenly they change. At church, mom and dad are best friends. They get on very well. But no one knows they've had a row or a fight. And I'm not going to tell. Daddy loves the meetings. He's always at the mall. He's learning how to understand the letters of St. Paul. The Apostle Paul, that is. But Mommy says, I'm stuck at home to lead my Christian life. It's just as well for Paul. He didn't have a wife. They really love each other. I think they really do. I think the people in the church would help them if only they knew. Beloved, while on the one hand, this is a humorous little poem by a little boy. On the other hand, it is also very sad and tragic. Because I believe it highlights a major problem in many of our churches, including, I think, our own. The heartbreaking reality is that the experience of this family in varying degrees of intensity, I think, is the norm for many individuals and Christian families. And I'm not referring to the fact that they have issues of sin, Or weaknesses, we all have those. Amen? I didn't hear a very thunderous amen there. I guess you guys are perfect. 
We all have issues. But what I highlight is that there are many in the church who tend to put on their best face on Sunday mornings. Who put on their best attire and their happiest countenance. But if they were to be truly honest and transparent and authentic, things are not okay individually or in the home. And sadly, many Christians have private sins, burdens and problems, both personally and as a family, that the body of Christ knows very little, if anything, about. Many Christians live like islands in varying degrees, isolated from one another, independent from one another. And I suppose that we can discuss this problem of superficiality and a lack of transparency in the church by looking at the personal choices that individuals make. Sure. By and large, it is true that many Christians live very private lives, either because they don't want to appear to be vulnerable or weak in the eyes of other people, or they don't want others to judge them wrongly because of what's truly going on in the home or in their own personal lives. So they shut their hearts and their lives to others for fear that they will not be accepted. So we can certainly address this problem of superficiality in the church by looking at the choices of individuals or families. But I also think that we need to address this lack of transparency from the standpoint of a corporate community, from a corporate community level. Because many churches, if not careful, including our own, can unknowingly fail to cultivate an environment of grace where people are encouraged and motivated to be open about their struggles and their sins with one another. Where transparency and authenticity in relationships might be easy to come by rather than strenuous or difficult. Where people don't have to come in and put on their best face and their best behavior in order to be accepted. The sad reality is that as churches, we can be guilty of creating a self-righteous Legalistic environment, beloved. So we have to address both sides. But I ask you, is this the way that it ought to be in God's church? Yes or no? I don't think it needs to be that way in God's church, beloved. Listen to me. Christians who have been justified, fully forgiven and accepted by Almighty God, solely based upon the righteousness of Christ, ought to be the most forgiving and accepting and embracing of one another. We must do our best to promote and cultivate a culture among us where genuine, authentic relationships can flourish not for the purpose of creating some type of glorified self-esteem club where people just kind of come in, confess their sins and their struggles, get a pat on the back, we all wallow in our sin together, and then we go away with no biblical answers. That's not what I'm talking about. We do our best to promote and to cultivate this type of transparency and environment, listen, so that we might genuinely, in the context of biblical relationships, get to know one another at the deepest level and be able to help one another become more like Christ in the power of the Spirit of God by the guidance of His Holy Word. Amen? So this morning I want us to see what does this Spirit-empowered love look like in God's family, 
in our interaction with one another, in biblical, authentic relationships, where holiness is promoted and where people are forgiven because Christ has forgiven them already. Now, I want to give you a little bit of context before we go into Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Paul wrote the book of Galatians because the gospel was under attack amongst these believers, these Gentile believers. The church of Galatia was very dear to Paul. He had spent much time with them. And upon his previous visit, these Gentiles had joyfully embraced Paul the apostle as well as the gospel message. Paul describes how they previously embraced him in chapter 4 verse 14. And he says that they had previously received him as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. And he asks, where then is that sense of boasting you had, or that sense of blessing you had? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. They have fully embraced him and the gospel message. But after his departure, there was a major, major problem. Some Jewish false teachers called Judaizers entered... And they began to impose upon these Gentile Christians certain aspects of the Jewish way of life. And essentially, their message went something like this. It is good that you have received Christ. We're not denying that. It is great that you have Christ. But you also need to observe certain aspects of the Mosaic law. Circumcision. It is good that you have Christ, but you also need to embrace certain feasts and festivals. So this was an attack, essentially, on the sufficiency of Christ for salvation, is what it was. They were, they were saying, it's Christ, great, but you need Christ plus something more. And so Paul writes this letter. And in chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, he pronounces cursing upon them. It says, to those who would preach another gospel contrary other than what we have delivered to you, let him be accursed. Let him be anathema. Anathema means someone rendered for destruction. You think Paul considers error in the church seriously? An attack on the gospel? He, is very seri- he was very serious about that. And God is very serious about that. And then in chapters 1 through 2, Paul defends his apostleship and his call as an apostle. Because if they can discredit his apostleship, then they can discredit the gospel message. So he says, man didn't call me to this. Jesus called me by revelation. And then in chapters 3 through 4, Paul defends the gospel message. And listen to me, the heart of the gospel, justification by grace through faith in Christ alone. Amen? The precious doctrine that teaches us that we can be declared righteous before a holy and just God. Fully accepted and forgiven by faith alone in Christ alone. And amen to that. Apart from the works of the law. And throughout, Paul uses strong words of warning to these Gentile Christians, trying to knock some sense into them to wake up. In chapter 3, verse 1, listen to what he says. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Whose eyes, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? 
Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? And in the climactic peak of the letter, turn to chapter 5 and verse 1. Paul summarizes the point he has been seeking to make all along. And he says this in 5.1, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. What yoke, Paul? The yoke of circumcision, aspects of the Mosaic law, adding to Christ's sufficiency. And Paul says, stand firm by that freedom. Christ has freed you from the penalty and punishment of your sin. Christ has given you the power over the dominion of sin in your life. Stand firm in that freedom. Do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. And he highlights the fact that we are free in Christ. That self-righteous legalism, beloved, listen to me, has no place in God's church. None. We are free in Christ. We have been delivered from the penalty of our sin. If you're trusting in Christ. We have been delivered from the power of sin in our lives. If you are trusting in Christ Jesus alone. Amen? But lest anyone think that they are free to live it up, that our freedom is licensed for the flesh, listen to what he says in chapter 5, verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brethren. And here it is. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. What are we free to do? Not to live in accordance with the flesh, but we who are justified believers in the purest, most profound way because of the Spirit of God that permanently resides in each and every one of us can love in the most genuine, authentic, profoundest of ways. And he says in verse 14, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This freedom releases us to loving service for one another, beloved. Mark it. And the challenge to this loving service and harmony with others is this ongoing struggle in chapter 5, verses 16 through 23, between the flesh and the spirit that permanently resides in each and every one of us. When the flesh gets its way, guess what? There's sin involved and there's strife and animosity between one another. But when we are living in the power of the Spirit, yielding, submitting ourselves to the Spirit's leading, then the fruit of the Spirit is evident in our lives and in our relationships with one another. Chapter 5, verse 24 is very key as we lead into our passage here. Listen to what Paul says. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, i.e. born again... Let us also, what? Walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. So the key to a victorious Christian life is to be controlled by the Spirit of God, to be yielding ourselves to the Spirit of God's leading. Because when we're failing to do so, then the result will be boastful, arrogant believers challenging one another and envying one another. There will be the presence of rivalries between one another. And so in chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, right after Paul's emphasis on the need to walk by the Spirit, we have our passage. 
What does Spirit-empowered love look like in the community of faith? If we are a family, what does it look like to love one another in the power of the Spirit of God? In other words, how is the Spirit of God unleashed in our relationships with one another? In the way that we love one another authentically, genuinely, with transparent, profound kind of love. What does that look like? In the most crucial moments of one another's lives, when sin rears its ugly head in one another, and there are burdens too heavy to carry alone, what does that look like? How do we help one another? What are our loving responsibilities toward one another? And so this morning, I want to help us. And in chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, I want to examine two loving responsibilities of the Spirit-filled believer. Two loving responsibilities of the Spirit-filled believer that if practiced, listen, will help us cultivate an environment where genuine transparency flourishes, leading to authentic holiness for the glory of Christ, which is ultimately what we want, right? We want Him to be glorified. And the first one is this. As a community of faith, as God's family, we should be devoted to a love that is expressed in repairing broken lives. Love that is expressed in repairing broken lives. Listen to verse 1. Brethren, believers, God's family, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. I hate to break it to you, but you will sin. And other believers in the church will sin. Our expectation in God's family, beloved, is that sin is real. Is it not? Christians will be caught in, a, in trespasses. The word here, trespass, is the word, the word paraptoma. And it means to commit a false step, a blunder, a stumbling. And it refers to a Christian going off course, falling away from a divine precept. Some have made too much of Paul's use of trespass here, paraptoma, instead of the typical word for sin, hamartia. And they say, well, it must mean that this is inadvertent sin. But I think this is beyond the po- beside the point. I think trespass here is simply a synonym for sin. It is nothing less, nothing more. It's sin. That is what Paul is saying that will happen. Beloved, the fact of the matter is that sin is real in the church. Just because you are a Christian doesn't mean that you are a finished product. And you shouldn't expect others to be a finished product. We don't condone sin. We don't justify sin. But we expect and we anticipate that because we are not fully perfected, Christians will sin. Right? I remember one of my friends, somebody telling him as he was evangelizing, your church is full of sinners. I don't want to go to your church. And my friend said to him, you're right, join us. (laughs) The church is full of sinners saved by grace. The church is full of sinners saved by grace. No Christian is a finished product. Christians are a work in progress. We are broken people, beloved. We are broken people. 
So because we are fallen, being saved by grace, awaiting the consummation of our redemption, listen, we live with the expectation that we, as well as others, will sin. And helpful to remember is that this word has to signify a violation of God's word, not our own personal preferences. Many times we approach one another and we confront one another based upon preferences, do we not? This is dealing with a violation of God's word. We need to be careful as we initiate confrontation that we are not holding others to a standard, our own personal standards, as opposed to God's holy standard. Now, if it is true that Christians will sin and that sin is a reality, then what is our loving responsibility as God's family? Notice, it is to restore. It is to restore. Well, we anticipate that we will sin, that sin will be present. Genuine love motivates us, listen, to respond, not to turn the blind eye. Not to wait for the more spiritual people in the church, the leaders, the prominent super-Christians in the church to go confront sin. It is a responsibility, a command for every believer to engage sin. This implies confrontation, no doubt, the initial step. But listen to me. The vivid nature of this word, restore, kathartitso, is beautiful. It means to mend, to repair something that has been damaged or broken. Listen, so as to rectify or return to its previous condition. It was used as a mending of nets. Ethically, Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 1.10 and exhorts the Corinthians of the need to restore divided, striving parties. But perhaps its most beautiful use is a medical one. Medically, it signifies repairing a broken or fractured bone. Mending a fracture. Many of you perhaps have in the past, or maybe your family members or dearly beloved friends have have had a broken bone or a fracture. Do you remember how that doctor dealt with with that fracture or that broken bone? So gently, so tenderly, so carefully. That's the picture here. That is the way that we are to ought to be approaching one another. Tenderly and carefully. But also, listen, there is intentionality in this. There is a goal in mind, and it is this, to repair or mend somebody back to fullness of effectiveness. Many times we confront people, and we just let them have it. Here you go. Here's the ten violations of, of Scripture that, you, that are in your life. And then we just leave them on the floor, and we step on them as we, as we leave. That is not repairing anybody. Confrontation is the initial step. This is talking about bringing somebody to the full process of restoring them to effective use in God's church. Why? Because we want to see Christ glorified in their lives. Because we want to see them effective for the gospel. Because we want to see them using their gifts and flourishing in the body of Christ. You want that for your biological family, do you not? You can identify. Come on, speak to me. If you have kids, I want what's best for my kids. I want to see them flourishing. I don't want to see them down. I want to see them flourishing in life, loving the Lord, using whatever gifts God gives them or abilities. It's no different in God's church. Why do we treat one another differently? This word has the idea of bringing somebody to the point where they are effectively being used, flourishing in the body of Christ, beloved. 
Unrepentant sin, we recognize, hinders them. Hinders them from being vibrant and useful. And we don't want to see that in our beloved brethren, do we? We don't want to see that. So genuine Christ-honoring love means that we engage them and take them through the process of restoration. We want to see them growing, being all that God wants them to be. This restoration entails what kinds of things? Certainly coming in and helping that brother or sister see their sin, recognize it. It entails them helping them confess their sin and asking God's God's forgiveness for that sin. It entails helping them by the strength that God supplies to complete useful service to see how, you know what, the Spirit of God is going to get you through that. He wants to use you in the life of the church. And I'm so glad that you are, you have turned from this. How do I help you get up so that you're serving again? You see that? Full recovery is what we want to see. Now notice the attitude of this restoration. I think Paul, because of our tendency to lash out and deal with one another harshly, says, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, meekness. You know what gentleness is? It's really the external side, the external expression of an internal, what? Humility. That's what it is. When we recognize that before God, we are broken vessels being used by Him, we are brought low when we compare ourselves to the perfect God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are brought to a lowly state internally. And then how do we deal with others externally? With gentleness, with meekness. We deal gently with others because we recognize that we are equally beloved, vulnerable, and weak. We are not invincible. That we are susceptible to the same sins. And in contrast to walking in the flesh... This is a fruit of the Spirit, gentleness. So it follows that if it's a fruit of the Spirit, listen, that those who are to be restoring a sinning brother or sister are those who are the what? The what? The spiritual. You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Now there are all kinds of crazy views about the spiritual in this passage, and I'm just going to say it up front straight out to you. These are not super Christians. In the church. These are not perfect people who have it all together. I think that in keeping with the context of spiritual here, listen, are those who belong to Christ Jesus, chapter 5, verse 24, who live by the Spirit, chapter 5, verse 25, but are also following the Spirit. Those who are yielding, submitting themselves to the Spirit's leading and by the guidance of the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit. And thus evidencing the fruit of the Spirit in their lives in accordance to chapter 5, verses 22 to 23. Far from being a finished product, these, the spiritual, are those who are, as a pattern of their lives, characterized by a continuous submitting, yielding themselves to the Spirit's leading. And it will express itself externally. Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 says this, But do not be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be, the idea is continually filled with the Spirit. And how does that manifest itself, Paul? Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody with your hearts to the Lord. Always giving thanks. Being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. 
Wives will submit to their husbands. Husbands will love their wives as Christ loved the church, and so forth and so forth. So the spiritual are those who are characteristically, as a pattern of their lives, walking in obedience to God's holy word. They are those who are letting the word of Christ dwell in them richly. Colossians 3.16 Think about it. Doesn't it make perfect sense that those who are walking in holiness would be best equipped to help those who are not? It is interesting. If you've ever had the opportunity to fly on a plane, you get on the plane and as the plane is taking off, a recording goes off or goes on. And you begin to get instructed about emergency procedures, safety procedures in case of a major disaster. And one of the things that they teach you is that if you are in a position, should you be in a position to help someone in trouble, what should you do first with your oxygen mask? Put it on first. It makes no sense if both of you are passed out. It makes no sense. Both of you are toast. You've made the problem worse. The only chance you have is to put it on yourself, to make sure you're healthy, you're able to go, and then you help that other person. It's no different in the life of our community, beloved. We must be ready to engage others. This becomes a safeguard for us. See? When we come to others and we're, we want to repair them, not only are we talking about to them about their sin and helping them get back up, but it also becomes a safeguard for us because, listen, we now have to check ourselves to make sure we're healthy, right? Huge problems happen when the fleshly people are trying to deal with the fleshly people. Strife and quarrels and all kinds of rivalries happen. Jesus said it best when he was exposing the hypocrisy of his day. Matthew 7, 3 through 5. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. The principle is we can't run around trying to solve people's problems, sins, when we are doing the same thing ourselves or even worse kinds of things. That is not authentic love. That's hypocrisy. So our loving responsibility is to engage sinning brethren, beloved. The spirit of gentleness, rather than being outraged, we are to love one another and engage one another for the glory of Christ, the good of that brother or sister, and for the best of the rest of the body who is going to suffer if we allow that sinner to continue in that unrepentant sin. Right? Now, with each of these two loving responsibilities, we are given a caution. And Paul cautions us in verse 1 and says, Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. And the caution here is that in the process of repairing broken lives, we must be careful to guard against spiritual pride that manifests itself in self-righteousness in our lives. That all of a sudden we think that we are not vulnerable and susceptible to the same type of sin. The verb translated here, looking, is skapeo. Sound familiar? Scope? And it refers to deep and penetrating watchfulness, contemplation and consideration of our own lives. We recognize that when someone sins, beloved... Not only are we dealing with their own sin or helping them deal with their own sin, now all of a sudden it becomes a checkpoint for us that we don't become proud. 
thinking that we are all that in a bag of chips, that we would never do the same thing. We are capable of any sin, beloved, were it not for the grace of Almighty God. Capable of anything. We ought not to be like the Pharisee in Luke 18 who exalts himself above the broken contrite tax collector. I thank you, God, that I am not like that tax collector. And meanwhile, the tax collector is broken way over on the side, in the back, broken and contrite. Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Let him who stands, who thinks he stands, take heed lest he what? Fall. So in the process of restoring one another, we must be careful to recognize that we can fall as well if we get arrogant and we get proud. And so that drives us to deal with, with, with each other with gentleness, beloved, and with the utmost of care and fear for our own selves, that if we ourselves are not yielding to the Spirit's leading, then we can fall on our face very quickly as well. How are we doing in this area, in this loving responsibility of repairing broken lives, beloved? Don't think about other people right now. Think about yourself. How are you doing? Are you inviting others into your life that they might get to know you and help you with the sins that are in your life? Or are you a, a, a lone duck trying to make it on your own? Or are you engaging others? Do you turn the blind eye when other, another believer is in sin? Wait for someone else to do it. Some of you are AWOL with regards to to this ministry of reconciliation, of, of restoration. You're nowhere to be found. You're disengaged. You're uninvolved. You have adopted the general American mindset of carefree comfort, privacy, and individualism, and independence. Praise God in this great country for our independence. But you know what? That is not the way we're called to live as Christians. Amen? We are not to be like islands, beloved. We need one another. We need one another. We are not just called to live isolated lives. Nobody knows what's going on. And that is exactly, beloved, that is exactly where Satan wants you. He wants you isolated. He knows that there's strength in numbers. He wants you to be like the zebra in the lion's den, the lone zebra. He loves it. Because once he gets you there, you're done. It's just a matter of time. Don't fool yourself. You need the body of Christ. It is so sad that many people, even in the church, in the world, one of the famous sayings is Christians are famous for shooting their own wounded. Because on the other hand, it's devastating to the church, beloved, that many times we treat each other more as enemies or distant acquaintances, rather than God's family. We run around exploiting others, talking about others, rather than engaging them and wanting to repair lives in the power of the Spirit of God. We are family. How does family treat other family? Think about that. Let me ask you, what is your attitude... When, someone, when you're aware that someone in the church is in sin, what is your attitude to that? Do you rejoice? Do you relish in the fact that they've sinned? Do you find some personal satisfaction that all of a sudden now you're better than they are? 
Or do you mourn? Do you weep? Do you grieve? And you can't wait to come and help your fallen brother. I saw that coming. Yeah, you could see that coming. We'll just have to pray for them now. It's just, it was just a matter of time. No, beloved, we don't rejoice and relish. We engage for the glory of Christ, for the good of our brother, and for the good of the rest of the church. And beloved, listen to me. If you are AWOL, if you are disengaged in this loving responsibility, if you're uninvolved, that is not, you are not manifesting Christ's kind of love. You know what motivates the, this genuine love that authentically expresses itself in the commitment to repair broken lives? Christ's love for you. Let me ask you. Did you deserve for God to send His own beloved Son into the world to live the perfect life that you could never live? To die the sinner's death that you deserve? And to be raised conquering sin and death? Did you deserve that? We did not deserve that. Did we? Were you searching for God, beloved? No. God found you. God found me. We were broken and in spiritual poverty, beloved. Let me ask you now, are you now a finished product? No. Does God give up on you? Does He keep continue to repair you by His Spirit? Absolutely. Then why is it different in our dealings with one another? Why do we tear one another down? Why are we disengaged? Why are we uninvolved? If such is the love of Christ, then we ought to walk in His pattern of genuine, authentic love in the deepest, most hurtful times of life. Were it not for grace, beloved, were it not for God's unfathomable and sacrificial love, we would not be here. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not, what? Perish, but have everlasting life. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. Such is the love of God. Such is our motivation to never give up on one another. And when we fail to love one another in this way, we give evidence that to one degree or another, we have lost sight of the gospel. We have lost sight of Christ's work on our behalf and what it cost God the Father to save us in order that He might sanctify us. So when sin is present, beloved, we don't ignore it. We deal with it for the good of our brothers and sisters, for the good of the rest of the body, and for the glory of Christ. But notice, secondly, in verses 2 through 5, as God's family, we must be devoted to love that is expressed in mutual support for one another. 
Love that is expressed in mutual support, mutual burden bearing for one another. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ just in the same way that we expect and we anticipate sin amongst God's family. We also expect that burdens will be present, beloved. The word for burdens here refers to extra heavy, oppressive weight or low, too difficult to carry alone. The word is a metaphor that refers to the general oppressive weaknesses, hardships, and struggles of the Christian life. I think these include the besetting sins of verse 1 for sure. It's difficult to separate that. But I think it's more encompassing than that. These also include struggles like emotional struggles, like loneliness and depression and sadness. If you don't think that Christians had to struggle with those things, read Job and read Psalms. Financial struggles, poverty and financial strain, physical struggles, death and sickness and illnesses, familial struggles, marital and parental, work-related Struggles, the loss of a job, social or relational struggles, interpersonal conflict. You have any of these? None? We all have those, don't we? Listen, Christians are not problem-free people. Christians are not burden-free people. Rather, Christians are people whose connection and relationship to the living Christ empowers them to bring those burdens and struggles under the Lordship of Christ. In Christ, we find a merciful and faithful high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, beloved. For he has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. In Christ, we find company and comfort in the midst of loneliness and depression. In Christ, we find joy and forgiveness and renewed strength in the midst of sadness and spiritual failure. In Christ, we find the answers and the clarity that we need so desperately in the midst of confusion and perplexity. In Christ, we don't finally despair, but we find that His grace is sufficient, that His power is perfected in our weakness. Christ is with us. If you're a believer, Christ is our all in all in the midst of the burdens that we carry. So as believers, our connection and relationship to the risen Savior means everything. If you have Christ, you have it all. Amen? If you don't have Christ, you have no hope. This is your best life now with your sins and your struggles and your burdens that you carry. There's no forgiveness There is no strength for you apart from Christ. Christ is your only hope. Christ is everything. It's Christ plus nothing equals everything, as somebody has so aptly put it. Christ plus nothing equals what? Everything. So burdens will be present and we don't despair. But listen to me. Our gracious Christ the supreme Lord of the church, because of our weakness, has made a wonderful provision for us. He has given another gift. And you know what that gift is? One another. One another. Paul says, 
that our loving responsibility is to bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. The word bear here has the idea of to help carry the oppressive weight or hardship. So in Christ's church, God's people becoming a gracious provision by the supreme Lord of the church for mutual burden bearing so that you don't have to walk alone in life. See? We are shortchanging ourselves. If we have a lone ranger mentality where everybody fends for themselves... And notice the motivation. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. I think that this law of Christ, beloved, is the law of love. Jesus said in John thirteen thirty four, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And the prevalence of love in the previous chapter, chapter 5, chapter 5, verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. Our faith is not stagnant. A living faith yields the fruit of love. In chapter 5, verse 13, Paul says, For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. But here it is. Through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. In the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And love is the first of the fruit of the Spirit, by the way. Far from a private matter, beloved, is your relationship with Christ. It matters deeply to Him that you are engaged in self-sacrificial love that expresses itself in mutual burden-bearing with other believers. We love because He first loved us, beloved. And Christ was the ultimate example of love in person and deed. We always fall short of His love, but we strive to love in imitation of our wonderful King. Amen? If you have planted a tree, you know that there are times when in order for the little small tree that's falling, falling down or is dying, you have to drive a wooden or metal post called a stake with a point on one end to the ground, deep, next to that little tree. Sometimes you even have to tie a rope around both of them in order for that little tree to be supported. And as time goes, that little tree, the, the, the roots run deeper into the soil. And what happens? It grows stronger, and eventually it's able to bear the fruit that it was intended to bear, right? That stake allowed that to hold up that little tree. That is the picture of us here. Who are you staking yourself next to? Who are you holding up in the Christian life? Who is holding you up? Who is doing so? Some of you just said, Jesus, yes, first and foremost, preach it. But what are we learning? As an extension of the wonderful provision of our Lord, the King, He's provided one another. Amen? So Christ uses means, and we become the we benefit from that wonderful, wonderful reality that we are instruments in the Redeemer's hands, beloved. So we must be willing to stake ourselves next to others for a time to hold them up. I deeply grieve for some of you. You have no accountability in life right now. Nobody is able to help you with your sins that you're struggling with. You have burdens beyond what anybody even knows. And you think that you are going to be everything that God has called you to be without the input of others. 
It ain't going to happen. It isn't going to happen. You are the lone zebra in the lion's den, beloved. I deeply grieve for you. Some of us are too preoccupied with our own issues and problems. And so we resort to the common excuses. I don't have time. I am too busy. We're too busy for people, God's people. But it is not always that we're unwilling. Sometimes we just feel helpless, do we not? We feel helpless. And so what I I would say is that we need to approach things from the standpoint of the context of biblical relationships. That we are getting to know one another so that we are able to really know what is going on in one another's lives. And that will provide wisdom. Now we know how to come alongside of others. But Paul also gives a caution here in verses 3 through 5. And notice, in case you think you are too good to come alongside of others for this burden-bearing stuff, Paul says in verse 3, For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he continually deceives himself as the idea. As in verse 1, Paul gives a caution here. And it is this, What will hinder you from coming alongside of others, beloved, will be a selfish life rooted rooted in self-exalting pride. A high view of yourself. See, self-exalting pride is so deceptive. I remember a friend of mine once telling me, Kempis, beware of pride in your life. It's so subtle and deceptive. Pride is like bad breath. Everybody knows you have it except you. (laughs) Pride is so subtle and deceptive. Pride doesn't just say, beloved, I am better than you are. But self-exalting pride also says, I am more important than you are. And therefore, my needs are more important. And my wants and my pursuits. And if I were to ask for a show of hands of those of you who feel that way, you wouldn't raise your hand. It's more about the way that we live, that we communicate that. That that we are number one. Selfishness rooted in a high view of self will keep us from mutual burden bearing. This type of self-sacrificial love, beloved. And Paul says, if that is you, you think you're all that in a bag of chips, you are continually, while you are continually being nothing, then you are in a state of deception. You are self-deceived. What is the pride-deflating antidote for a high view of self, beloved? Paul gives it to us here in verses 4 through 5. He doesn't leave us there. Because the antidote for self-exalting pride is personal self-examination. See, we can find many people, somebody that we're better than, always. We can always find somebody. But when we compare ourselves to the Supreme Lord, the perfect God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, we are brought very low, are we not? Very low. And notice in verses 4 through 5, the, the emphasis here on personal self-examination as opposed to others. But each one must examine his own work. And then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. The emphasis here is on examining oneself. The word dakimatsu here means to test something for the sake of approval. It was used of the process of exposing gold to intense heat to determine its genuineness and authenticity. We are called to put ourselves to the test, not in comparison to others, but we know that as Christians in comparison to who? Almighty God. That is who we compare ourselves to. And we are brought low. 
Self-examination is very profitable for us. It's self-deflating if our standard of comparison is the right one. If we are comparing ourselves to others, we're always going to find reasons to elevate ourselves above others, aren't we? If we are comparing ourselves to Christ, we're brought very low. Spiritual poverty exists in our lives. So we must compare ourselves to Him. And when we do that, I love how Jeremiah puts it in Jeremiah 9.23. Let not a wise man boast of his riches, of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts, boast of this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things. And in the end, beloved, what will matter, and Paul says in verse 5, that we will bear our own load. And this is an interesting thing here. Some people have pointed out, well, contradiction. Paul, why is Paul telling us here that each of us will bear his own load? And he told us in verse 2 that we need to be bearing others' burdens. And I think what clarifies that is that this word for load in verse 5 is a different word than the word used for burdens in verse 2. Here, the word in verse uh, verse 5, fortion, refers to a little bag, like a little purse. And I think what he's pointing out here is this, that at the end of the day, it will not matter how you measure in comparison to others, beloved. What will matter is how you measure in comparison to Christ. We know that at the end, there will be a judgment of believers. Paul speaks of this in 2 Corinthians 5.10 that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. This judgment for believers is not for condemnation. We understand that. Our standing is secure because it is based solely upon the righteousness of Christ. But this judgment will have to do with the quality of our lives, whether we have lived for his glory. And we want to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, beloved. How are we doing in this area? How are we doing? You know, repairing broken lives and mutual burden bearing will not happen if we are not actively participating in the life of the body. Amen? It will not happen. It will become mechanical, like we're all a bunch of machines. It won't be done relationally if we are not putting ourselves in a position whereby we are interacting with one another. We must be participating in the life of the body of Christ. We can't be spectators just coming in on a Sunday morning for an hour and a half, listening to a sermon, hearing the wonderful songs that Pastor Tim Adams points out, hearing all kinds of wonderful, encouraging things, and then we leave and nobody knows anything about us anymore. And I'm not talking about getting involved in programs or structures Well, those are good if they accomplish shepherding. I'm talking about, are you getting to know one another? Are you serving one another? Are you participating in the church? Stop dating the church, beloved. Stop dating the church. Some of you are totally aloof to what's going on. And you think that you are going to be vibrant. You're not. You're fooling yourself. You are not invincible. You need others. You need others. You will never be everything that God has called you to be, beloved. You need the body of Christ. You have been called not to just function as an individual, isolated. You have been called into a community. Amen? I think that's what Pastor Tim Carnes has been hitting at Sunday mornings. We are a part of a body. We are a family. Whereby we glorify our Lord Jesus Christ in the way that we love one another, genuinely, authentically. 
in the context of biblical relationships. Stop dating the church. Stop coming in and out without being involved in the lives of other people and inviting and welcoming others to be a part of your life. And I'm so encouraged by many of you, uh, others of you. You are so committed to Jesus. You love the Lord so much. And you are constantly, constantly caring for the needs of other people in this body. I'm floored as a pastor by some of the things that some of you are doing that, that most of you here will never know. I'm so grateful for you. Excel still more, beloved. Excel still more. The challenge for us this morning is, how is our commitment to Christ really at the root? Because if we're not committed to His people, then that means that we are not committed to the Lord of the church. Amen? Are we inviting and practicing this type of Spirit-empowered love into our lives? Repairing broken lives, bearing one another's burdens, beloved. Especially in the most difficult of times when sin is present and burdens too difficult to carry alone are present. Perhaps some of you remember the 1992 Olympic Games in Barcelona when a famous British track and field star by the name of Derek Redmond, sound familiar? One of the favorites to win the 400-meter semifinal was running full speed around the track in front of thousands cheering. Tragically then, as he's running... Lightning speed around this track, he tears his hamstring. Imagine that. After all that time and commitment. And then in an amazing display of courage and commitment, beloved, he gets up crying and starts limping the last lap. If you're watching the TV, you're you're crying and bawling yourself. But then all of a sudden from nowhere, from nowhere comes this old man. It's his dad. It's his dad. He joins him on the track, puts his arm, the arm of his son around him, and he assists him, and he finish, helps him finish the race. Everybody's crying. People are giving a standing ovation. And then afterward, with, with a reporter, the dad says this, quote, Whatever happened, he had to finish. And I was there to help him finish. I intended to go over the line with him. We started his career together, and I think that we should finish it together. End quote. The incident has become a well-remembered moment in Olympic history used in commercials and advertisements all over the place as a worldwide example of inspiration, devotion, and commitment to one's country and one's sport. To me, that becomes a visible illustration of how God's family, beloved, ought to be helping one another finish the race of the Christian life. And you know what? As great and as awe-inspiring as that moment in Olympic history, infinitely more awe-inspiring is when Christians, God's family, in the power of the Spirit, by the guidance of God's Holy Word, love one another this way. Infinitely more inspiring is that. When we are engaged actively in repairing broken lives, in bearing the burdens of one another, self-sacrificially, beloved, And in that way, we exalt a supreme burden bearer, the Lord Jesus Christ, who took upon himself, beloved, the burden of our sin and washed it away. Amen? When we are loving one another as God's children, we are imitating his relentless and selfless love, the love of our loving, gracious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.
Father, we thank you so much for the great salvation that we have in you that delivers us from the domain of darkness and transfers us into the kingdom of your beloved Son. And we pray, Father, that as believers, we might also recognize that the gospel that saves is the gospel that transforms, whereby we might be holy, and you use us in the lives of one another to effect that holiness. Father, help us, Lord, to walk away from here, not being only hearers of your word, but doers, Father, applying ourselves to loving one another and the power of your spirit for the glory of our risen Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.